in human history. And incredibly, the Lord Jesus says this immediately after John the Baptist sends messengers to him in which he second guesses the tone and the timing of the Lord Jesus' ministry. Can you imagine? The guy has uh, some doubts and some concerns, John the Baptist, and Jesus says he's the greatest guy who's ever lived. Amazing grace. And I think one lesson is this. Even John the Baptist, the goat, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time, had moments of despair, had moments of self-pity. And the underlying principle that can revolutionize my Christian life, and maybe even your Christian life, is that unbiblical and or unrealistic expectations will trip up anybody. You know, if we live with the same mindset that John the Baptist has in Matthew 11, it's going to punch holes in our Christian joy. It's going to guarantee you a bitter life experience in this fallen, imperfect world. We've been designed for something much greater than the status quo. And uh, status quo actually is a, is a Latin expression. It means the mess we's in, right? We live in a fallen world. We've been designed for something much better. Christ is going to get us there. In the meanwhile, we should move toward the ideal, but we've got to accept the real. Let's pray that uh, the teacher will be clear today, clear head, pure heart. And let's focus on the text, not the teacher, and that the Holy Spirit might illumine our understanding of this text so we might apply it to the way we think and live. But as we do that, pray for teachability. Let's pray for our troops, our peace officers, firefighters, as is our custom. And Well, um, last couple of weeks we've had fun with Ron Miller and Jack Smith and Ken Wanzer with our abstract thought warmer-uppers, but I thought we'd go back to a neutral baseline today. Puns with punch. This won't help, crossing your fingers, but we're, we're going to try. Why did the banana go to the doctor's office? Because it wasn't peeling well. It wasn't peeling well. We'll go to the next pun here. How do you organize a birthday party in outer space? You've got to plan it. Hold your applause. This will be the last one today. Why was the baby strawberry so sad? Because both her mom and dad were in a jam. We're going to move very rapidly to the text today. Matthew 11, verse 2 through 19. And it tells us this. First, we're going to see John the Baptist ask Jesus an easily misunderstood question. I think a lot of the commentators misunderstand this question he's asking, and I'll give you my understanding of it here. Uh, that's verses 2 and 3. Then in verses 4 through 6, Jesus, who completely understands the question, obviously, responds to John's question. Then in verses 7 through 15, Jesus praises John and his ministry, which, man, that's amazing. i got to ask John when I see him in heaven, you know, how did that feel, you know? Verses 16 through 19 then conclude this unit of thought. Finally, Jesus, Jesus, after praising John in his ministry, even while John is second-guessing Jesus, finally Jesus critiques his generation generally because they actually saw this 
messianic forerunner John and saw the Messiah himself or were on the ground when he was on the ground and very few actually responded. So let's look first at verses 2 and 3. And let's read that. John asked Jesus an easily misunderstood question. Now, when John, while imprisoned, he's been in prison for about a year, according to Josephus, you hear people quote Josephus, Josephus was a first century Jewish historian, and the scripture doesn't tell us where John the Baptist was held in captivity by Herod Antipas, but Josephus, who's a historian, sometimes he's right, sometimes he's wrong, he says it's in uh, Machairus, which is actually a, a hill in Jordan today, it's on the east side of the river, and I've had the privilege of being there, so it's a real place. So John, he's been in prison now for about a year, he's about to get his head chopped off, as you know the rest of the story, heard of the ongoing works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to Christ, are you the expected one, are you the Christ, are you the Savior that the Old Testament promised that I've been proclaiming, or shall we look for someone else? Now, you read that, you got to say, Tommy, what's going on here? I mean, this is the guy. This is John the Baptist in the spirit and power of Elijah. And he seems to be doubting the person of Jesus. Are you the Christ or not? Put up or shut up is what it sounds like. Um, I don't believe that's what's happening here. I believe that he's not questioning the person of Jesus for reasons I'll explain. I think he is questioning the program, the timing, and the tone of Jesus' ministry. Have you ever second-guessed God on his timing? That happens to all of us, you know. Now, here's the, here's the big principle. You've got to remember when you interpret the Bible, or your parents if you're a teenager, or your spouse if you're married, or your boss if you have a job, or your teachers if you go to school, or the pastor and elders of your local church, uh, the key to understanding anything anybody says or writes is context, right? You must put what people say in context because the Bible, parents, teenagers, spouses, bosses, teachers, pastors, and elders don't always mean what they say, but they always mean what they mean by what they say, the way they say it. What is the word great mean? Let's say really good. That's not a trick question, okay? So I would, if I were to say, it would be great if the OSU football team beat OU this year. It'd be great, okay? It'd be really good from my perspective. But uh, at the end of second hour today when I'm going out to my car, if somebody says, hey, Pastor Brad, I got bad news, you got a flat tire, I would say, that's just great. What does great mean? Really good? It doesn't mean what the dictionary definition says at all. Um, back to verses 2 and 3. Many people, including most commentators, take this statement as just existential doubt, total spiritual wipeout kind of a thing, at least temporarily, uh, that he's under so much stress after a year of imprisonment, he's no longer even rational anymore. I don't believe that's what's happening, and there's one reason for that. Context. Okay, let's think about in reality about John and Jesus before this event and right after it happens, right after this 
question is uh, related to Jesus. Well, exhibit A would be, what do we know about John the Baptist and Jesus before Matthew 11? Well, we know at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, what did John the Baptist do? Baptized Jesus as the Christ. And did he have any visual or audio aids to reinforce what he did? John the Baptist heard the voice of God the Father saying, this is my beloved son. Okay, He heard that. You don't question that under any circumstances, I don't think. So he knows who Jesus is the Christ. And then immediately after this, in verse 11, Jesus says, this is the greatest guy who ever lived. I don't for a second think that John is saying, I don't really think you're the Christ, or I maybe made a mistake. I don't think that's even possible. I think what's happening here is, I'm going to use an expression we used to use, that John is trying to build a fire under Jesus. He's trying to get him off what he thinks and moving in the right direction from his perspective. John the Baptist is expecting Jesus to free him from prison and to start confronting the Roman government who's been occupying Israel for a hundred years in connection with being the lamb and the lion, right? That the Old Testament says. Uh, what the problem is here is not with Jesus, but with John. He has unrealistic expectations, okay? He's not questioning his person. John is questioning Jesus' program, the timing and the tone. Now, let me give you an illustration. Imagine a football coach who has a really good team, and they're heavy favorites in a football game, and at halftime, they're behind 21 to nothing, and the defense has made a lot of boneheaded mistakes, you know, and they don't, I don't think they teach them to drop passes or fumble the ball in practice. You don't practice those things. They just happen. The offense is not running very good. And the coach goes in, this is high school football, and the coach goes in at halftime and says, uh, are you, are you guys high school football players or are you kindergarten kids? Do you think any of those football players were saying, oh man, the coach thinks we're kindergarten kids. What's the coach doing there? Is he questioning their person? He's questioning their performance. They're football players. He knows they're all football players, but in his opinion, they're not meeting his expectations. In Matthew 11, and you know what? All of us have probably been there. You have a great person with gross perspectives. He's a victim of his own stinking thinking. Zig Ziglar, wasn't that a great name? Was that his real name, Zig Ziglar? I mean... If I wanted to be a Christian motivational speaker, I would just steal that name, Zig Ziglar Jr. And maybe that's what I can do in my spare time in the future. Zig Ziglar Jr., you know. Um, he used to talk about stinking thinking. And John Baptist here is just a victim of stinking thinking. I think he has done a couple things wrong. He's put a time limit on God's program and his promises in the Old Testament scripture about what the Christ was going to do. Um, yeah, the Messiah will be the lion of the tribe of Judah who's going to bring judgment on all the bad guys. But that's in connection with the end times, not the first century that John's living in. And secondly, I think John the Baptist here failed to consider all of God's promises in Old Testament scripture about the Christ. Uh, if I can use a word we used a couple weeks ago, he didn't correlate what the Old Testament said about the lamb, Messiah as the lamb, with Messiah as the lion. Passages, chapters like Isaiah 53 makes it very clear the Messiah is going to be a lamb first and the sacrifice for our sins we just sang about. Before, after that, he'll be a lion and he'll end human history on God's terms undeniably and supernaturally. So 
Yeah, we've got this dynamic here. Human beings, including John the Baptist, the greatest person who'd ever lived up to that point. Connie Norton and Kylene Driggs and Brad McCoy. Number one, we never have enough information to legitimately second-guess God, but man, it's tempting sometimes based on what we can see. And no matter how spiritual you are, if you get cut, what's going to happen? You're going to bleed. When you suffer a loss, what's going to happen? You're going to grieve. And the deeper the loss, the deeper the grief. And when you put time limits on God and or fail to correlate Scripture accurately, you're going to plead, as we had bleed, uh, grieve, and plead. It's very hard to make them all rhyme like that. When you're in that boat, you're going to think, the Lord has done me wrong. John the Baptist is full of self-pity because he's failing to correlate Scripture and he's putting a time limit on God. And God doesn't enable that kind of stuff at all. Okay, Let's go to verses 4 through 6. The Lord understands and responds to John's question. And he's not saying, you can't doubt I'm the Christ. He says something else. He says, the program's right on track, John. You put a time limit on the lion part, I'm doing the lamb part. Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. And I see Jesus saying this with a smile on his face. I don't think he's angry. Just say, hey, just think about it, okay? Uh, Just like Isaiah 29 says, Isaiah 35 says, the blind receive their sight. That's a unique Miracle of the Messiah, lame walk, lepers cleanse, that's a unique Messiah type of miracle, deaf hear, dead are raised. These physical miracles validate that Jesus is the Christ, the expected one, and then he leaves the best for last. The poor, meaning not financially, but spiritually, have the gospel preached to them. All those physical supernatural miracles are designed to validate that he's the issue and the issue of eternal life, and people are hearing and believing. They're poor because, blessed are the poor in spirit, because they're GIs. They recognize their guilt before God. They haven't redefined sin or rationalized it, and they realize their inability. That's where you got to start to receive the gospel. You don't need a savior unless you realize you're guilty and can't save yourself. So he's saying, Jesus is saying, everything's right on track. It's going great, right? The Old Testament teaches that the expected one, the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, would come as a servant, the Lamb of God, before he would come back as the sovereign, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, talking about the second advent, it's not going to be pretty. It's going to be the ultimate judgment at the book of end of the book of Revelation. But here's the thing you need to keep in mind. Justice is never pretty, period. But God's justice isn't pretty, but it's always preceded by God's grace. And Jesus is saying, look, before I wreak, uh, wreak havoc on uh, the status quo as the lion, I'm, I'm here as a, as a lamb. I'm right on track, no problem. Verse 6, then the Lord concludes his answer to John and says, Blessed is the one who doesn't take offense at me, doesn't second-guess me, doesn't put time limits on me, what I'm doing, doesn't get mad because we don't like his tone or his timing. Uh, and all that kind of thing in my life and in your life and in John's, the Baptist life here, Summer, is based on unrealistic expectations, unbiblical expectations. This is a real danger for all Christians. And if you read the Bible carefully, and I know Lana probably has, a lot of people in the Bible second-guess God, get mad at God. I mean, the two that come immediately to mind are Moses. 
He does that several times. Elijah does that. That's interesting because John was kind of like Elijah in a lot of ways, including this one. But I think the most interesting person who gets mad at God because of unrealistic expectation in the Bible is one of my favorite Bible characters, Asaph. Very famous. No, nobody knows who Asaph is. But if you'll turn to Psalm 73, and I'm going to give you a paraphrase of the bottom line in Psalm 73. What an incredible chapter. You need to know where this is. You're going to need this. You're going to see this guy get mad at God and get over it biblically. And so next time you doubt God's timing or you second guess what he's doing in your life, and you're only seeing 15 or 50 factors and he sees 10 billion, how it all fits together. But uh, Asaph's the guy. I love this passage. And we're going to focus on verses 21 through 28 after he resolves his conflict. But for the first 14 verses, he esteemed at God because so many bad things happen to good people. But even worse, Julie, he's mad at God because so many good things seem to happen to bad people. And he just argues that for 14 verses. And he's really, the more he talks, the angrier he gets. Very unrealistic expectations about living in a fallen world full of people's sin natures. But that's where he is, and he's honest about it. Then we hit the pivot point. Looking around at our world's de- depressing, looking up and beyond our world's refreshing, and he says, you know, I, I was when I was mad at you, I failed to factor in the eternity factor. For me to envy a drug pusher or a pornographer or an abortionist who's living in a mansion and has got everything he wants and five houses and five, you know, uh, Corvettes and this and that and all kinds of girlfriends and all this other stuff, everything, you know, rings on every finger. For me to envy somebody like that who's one heartbeat away from the justice of God is ridiculous. Right? So he, he, if you limit to what God's doing to what you can see or even to your lifetime, you're greatly reducing the program of God. And when you oversimplify things, you distort them. Just beware. There's a lot of popular uh, books and uh, messages given today that so oversimplify Scripture, it distorts them. And you're going to hit a breaking point pretty quick. You know, what does God's omnipotence mean? God can do anything? Doesn't, doesn't mean that. There's a lot of things God can't do. He can't lie, can't die, can't stop being God, can't make a square circle, can't make a rock so big he himself can't lift it. But those are not limitations on him. In fact, omnipotence means there's no finite limit to his power. Okay? And he's got all eternity to make it all line up. So looking around is depressing. Looking up and beyond and factoring in eternity is a total mind changer, game changer. And then just to save time and add a little punch, since you didn't like my puns with punch, we're going to paraphrase uh, the bottom line of Psalm 73, verses 21 through 28. So just kind of listen. This is a classic example of how a believer with unbiblical, unrealistic expectations can move past being mad at God. And I've been there. And you've probably been there. We'll probably be there sometime in the future. I'm not proud of it. I'm just being honest, you know. Uh, he says, verses 21, this is a paraphrase. Asaph, when my heart was embittered and I was angry with you, Lord, I was foolish, like a dumb animal, biting the hand that feeds it. But I was, throughout that period of being in panic palace, and still am connected to you, Because you have taken hold of my right hand and you never let go. Listen, what the Bible's about for Ken Wanzer and for Carla 
Buchanan is salvation, not probation. Now, we've got uh, Mason here with us this weekend. Christian's other grandmother died a couple of days ago. So Mason's with us uh, as they're doing final prep for the funeral, which will be Monday. But um, was it yes, yesterday? Uh, was his birthday? The, November 2nd is his birthday. And so we've got custody of him. So Karen was going to take him to Walmart and buy out the store, and we were going to take him, you know, to Brahms and this and that. She's she's generous. She's too generous. I mean, uh, I wish she spoiled her brother-in-law as much as she spoils all my grandkids. But she didn't want to do that. She's recovering from knee surgery. Um, so anyway, we thought we'd have a mini birthday party, but then but Kristen and rightly said, you know, he's two years old, so he doesn't know that yesterday technically was his birthday. So they said, hey, after the funeral, we're going to have a, a proper birthday party for him. They're going to go to Chuck E. Cheese in Tulsa. So it's all going to be happy. He's going to get all he's entitled to for turning three. But uh, my point about Mason is, um, if you go to the, I live on Virginia, uh, which runs, what, east and west. But if you go to the street that, that it connects with, it's called Archway. It goes due south, right into the is it Sanford, the Sanford Children's Clinic, is what it called? You know, it looks like a castle. The last two days, guess who's, in Mason, for a two-year-old, three-year-old kid, he can run. I mean, Carol and Ken run every day. They run eight miles a day. David runs, you know, the marathon up Pikes Peak earlier this year. Uh, but this, for, I've never seen a two-year-old be able to do distance running before. This is unbelievable, man. And uh, so, Papa, that's me, and he... Ran to the castle with a little walking for Papa in between, but because um, it is like a tenth of a mile or something, it's a long way. <laughs> but when we got to Elk, he wants to run across Elk. He's two years old, so he wants to run across Elk. Not going to happen. So did I say, well, you hold on to my hand, and if, if you don't let go, maybe we'll get across without you getting killed. Is that what I'm going to do as a responsible grandfather? You hold on to my hand, and we'll see what happens. He's not going to get away, Ashley. I'm holding on to his hand, okay? If he pulls away, it doesn't matter. I'm stronger than he is. That's what ASAP is doing. If we want to use modern psychological lingo, God is very secure, okay? You can tell him everything you're thinking. He already knows. But sometimes it's therapeutic for us to get it out. And ASAP's just saying, you know what? And we've not taken the time to look at the first 14 verses, but he gets really mad at God. When my heart was embittered and I was angry with you, I was foolish. There's no excuse. It's like a dumb animal biting the hand that feeds it. But I was then and still am connected to you because you have taken hold of my right hand. You're holding on to me. I'm not holding on to you. Salvation is not something we do for God. It's something he does for us in Jesus Christ. And you never let go. Now that I've worked through that, I'm actively resting in this fact. You will guide me. I won't always follow like I should, but you will give me what I need to be what you want me to be with the counsel of your word all the days of my life and then receive me to glory. I mean, then we go to a place where all your expectations will be correct and they will be exceeded in heaven forever, right? After all, whom have I in heaven but you, ultimately, who's going to open the door for me, right? And besides you, I need nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart will fail that's one of those Bible promises, James, nobody wants to claim. My heart and my flesh will fail. Even Ken and Carol in the great, and David, 
In fact, I just hope it doesn't happen the next time you run up Pikes Peak, man. That's what I'm concerned about. My flesh and my heart will fail eventually. My life on earth will end. But you, O God, give me strength day by day and will provide everything I need forever. Those who are far from you, whom I've been envying when I was angry with you for the first 14 verses, will perish. You punish all those who refuse to trust in you. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on that person. I mean, that's that's the deal. Um, You punish all those who refuse to trust in you and receive your salvation. But as for me, as a believer who's getting over being mad at you, your nearness, the fact you're holding on to my right hand, is the best thing in the core of my life. No matter what happens during this life, I will trust in you. The Lord God is my refuge. Instead of questioning you in times of great stress, I will tell others of your greatness. He starts questioning, and he says, I'm not in position to question. I'm just in position to mirror and share his greatness. You know, salvation is not something we do for God. The Bible says we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God in a place of punishment. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Acts 16.30, you've got the only place where somebody says, What must I do to be saved? And Paul, who wrote 13 New Testament books, that's not bad, 13 out of 27, says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The Bible says, For by grace, unmerited favor, you don't earn it, you don't deserve it, you can't unearn it or undeserve it. For by grace are you saved through faith. Jesus, I'm a sinner, I can't fix it, you died to pay my sin debt, and I want you to. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anybody has anything to brag about. Who gets the credit for your salvation? If it's not Jesus Christ alone, you ain't saved yet. Okay? It's not Jesus does a little bit and I do a lot at church. Or he does a lot and I do a little at church. you got to get all in. That's active, receptive trust. Okay, let's move beyond the question that John asks. The response Jesus gives to John, then doing a commentary on the greatness of John. Can you imagine this? You couldn't make this up. Look at verse 7 through 15. As these men, the people that John had sent to ask the question, were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowd. Don't think any less of John because you heard what that he's telling me to, to, you know, change the tone and timing of my ministry. He's fine. He just doesn't quite understand it yet. As those men were going around, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. And he says, what did you go out to the wilderness to see during his preaching ministry? A reed shaken by the wind? Some weak, fickle, people-pleasing religious peddler? Verse 8, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Some self-indulgent guy getting rich off the religion business? No. Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. You know all the corruption and all that thing. Verse 9. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yeah, somebody who represents God very dynamically and receives direct revelation from God. Yes, I tell you, and one who's more than just an ordinary prophet. This is the one about whom it was written in Malachi 3, verse 1. He's quoting that. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger ahead of you, the Messiah, the Christ who will prepare the way before you. And then verse 11, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there's not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. He's the greatest person who ever lived up to that point. Wow, that's amazing. 
Yet, Homer Cox, James Mitchell, Julie Miller, the one least in the kingdom of heaven, the, the new phase of the kingdom of heaven, the church age he's anticipating, is going to be greater than John the Baptist in our privileges and in our perspective. Rather than being Old Testament looking for a promised Savior, we look back at a provided Savior, and rather than having a national entity, Israel, that represents God, we're part of an international, multicultural, multi-generational dynamic called the church. The least a church-age believer spiritually is better than John the Baptist, who was the greatest guy who ever lived up to that point. Is that amazing or, or what? I like to emphasize that when we do the Lord's Supper, How privileged, what a privilege it is for us to be kind of between the first coming and the second coming when we do that. And we've got to do that one more time before I'm, I move on, right? He says, uh, If the one who's least in the kingdom is greater than he, from... From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered unique kind of violence and rejection. Violent men taken away from by force are going to de- decapitate John and crucify the Lord Jesus. For all the prophets and the law prophesied the promised Savior until John. But now during his generation, here I am. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the fulfillment of the Elijah, the spirit and power of Elijah prophecy, who is to come. The one who has ears, let him hear. Here's our kind of baseline description of the Bible and how it works. You know, the Bible's a big book, but it has only two parts. What's the first part called? The Old Testament. What's the second part called? The Old Testament is written before the life of Christ. Uh, it has one major premise. Everybody sins, everybody dies. One major promise, God's going to send the Christ, the expected one. In the immediate aftermath of the Life, death, resurrection of Christ. The New Testament is written. One major premise. Jesus of Nazareth is the one who was promised in the Old Testament. And he's coming back. So look busy, right? As they say. Got to do the right thing for the right reason, though. So let's kind of say that again, slightly differently. In the Old Testament, folks were saved by God's grace through faith in the promised Savior. And the promises get very, very specific, as you know. But in the aftermath of the actual life of Christ... We look back specifically to Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose again. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, right? Uh, in the Old Testament, Abraham believed God's promises about the Savior. That was reckoned as righteousness. Jesus says, Abraham in 2000 BC rejoiced to see my, my day in the eyes of faith. And he was glad and he trusted in me got saved, right? But the baseline dynamic is this. Whatever anybody tells you about salvation, if it contradicts Romans 4, 5, you're going to have to ask them to change it. But to the one who doesn't work, it's not about what you do for God, but believes in him, Jesus Christ, who justifies the ungodly, and everybody qualifies, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. So, boom. Incredible theological stuff. That wasn't too painful at all, was it? Look at verses 16 through 19. Let me back up. Let me back up and say this. The Old Testament's partial, preliminary, and points to Christ. It shows you spirituality of training wheels. On this side of the cross, God's taken off the training wheels. Okay? And so we're not under the Old Testament law. We get to live a righteous lifestyle focused on the person and lordship of Jesus Christ as a personal thing, not primarily focusing on rules. But in the same way that... Sound like Moses speaking for a minute. In the same way... 
that an old but sometimes profound TBF pastor once said, the most important church softball game is not as important as the least important prayer meeting. Even the greatest person in the Old Testament era you might say, no, 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 Matthew's in the New Testament. I know that. Matthew's in the New Testament. But in Matthew 11, we're talking about events. Will you tell me, is Matthew 11 describing a conversation before the death of Christ or after the death of Christ? New Testament doesn't start until right after the death of Christ. Matthew 11, Jesus is still ministering. In fact, he hasn't even had the Jewish leaders formally reject him yet in chapter 12. So that's an Old Testament setting. It's a New Testament book, but a... Old Testament setting. Actually, that can help revolutionize your Bible study when you realize that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are discipleship manuals, and they're set in the Old Testament, but written for New Testament Christians. So you keep that in mind, you'll avoid a lot of issues that really are kind of non-issues, really. So, watch this. After praising John, oh, I didn't finish. Yeah, I did. Yes, I finished. As the, the old pastor is me. But even in the days when we uh, thought church softball was really important, I would tell them, hey, the most important church softball game isn't as important as the least important prayer meeting. And John, or Jesus, is saying the least, quote-unquote, important, the least known, the least fruitful New Testament believer is greater, better off, in a greater position than John the Baptist was. So don't take that for granted. Now, verses 16 through 19. Finally, Jesus critiques his generation. This, it's, it's tough truth, but the vast majority of people who saw him in the miracles don't believe he's the Christ, don't receive him as salvation. It's not a head problem, it's a heart problem. But to whom shall I compare this generation? After praising John, let me just tell you generally what most of you are doing to yourselves here. It's like children, impossible to please, impact, implacable, very immature, irresponsible children. Not that, the problem with with two and three year olds. And listen, Mason is, is a very good natured little kid. And he's incredibly, uh, I guess it skips a couple generations. He's a lot more coordinated than I was. And even Jamie or Jonathan were at that age. But the problem with two and three year olds, eventually, you know, over a 24 hour period, they're going to hit a wall where they start acting like two year olds or three year olds. And that can be difficult. It can happen at church. You know, there's no, no offense there. No harm, no foul. So what shall I, how shall I describe this generation? It's like children sitting in marketplaces who refuse to be pleased with anything, you know, no matter what you give them, who call out to other children and say, hey, we played the flute for you, but you didn't dance like we expected you to do. We sang a dirge, you didn't mourn. Then Jesus says, John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking. He was an ascetic. Asceticism is the conviction that physical comforts weaken you spiritually or mentally. Okay. Now, I'm very much against that because I think uh, eating all the donuts you want all day long is actually very good for you spiritually, right? Because you're going to end up in the hospital. You're going to need to be praying, you know? Um, but, in, but John was very acidic, more, more acidic than the Old Testament even called for. Not acidic. That's the thing. <laughs> he was very acidic, okay? Uh, he didn't eat nor drink. Uh, and they say he has a demon. He's weird. Son of man, the Christ Jesus came eating and drinking. Very social. And they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard. Of course, that's absurd, the drunkard part. A friend of tax collectors and prostitutes, right? Yet wisdom's vindicated by our deeds. We're doing the right thing whether you like it or not. So it's kind of like you can't please the world with the gospel. Stop trying to make it palatable. Just be honest about it, you know? I mean, you're a sinner. You can't fix it. Jesus is the only way, and he'll give you eternal life forever if you trust him for it. And you got to get a lot of divine help to see all that stuff. But watch. Julie, Jesus feasted, John fasted, and they hated both of them. 
for, for different reasons, the vast majority. Jesus was very social. John the Baptist was a loner. They hated both of them, you know. Jesus was in and out of the cities all the time. John avoided cities, and they criticized him. So regardless of the personality or outward appearance, when you got a guy who's been in for 31 years, some of you are saying, it's about time we got to change. That'll be very helpful. And I get that. That's probably a good to reboot every 31 years or not, if you need to or not. But don't get hung up on my good looks or my overpowering charisma, you know? Not everybody has those. What's that? That's tongue-in-cheek. Regardless of the personality or outward appearance of God's messengers, the vast majority of people will willfully refuse God's overtures of common grace and even claim to have good reasons. And sometimes they blame it on preachers. I love it when they blame not interested in church or the Bible because of me. I mean, that, that hurts, but I kind of figured out that's kind of, the reason isn't always the reason, okay? So let's close this way. What do we see in Matthew 11, uh, verses 2 through 19? Even John the Baptist who was only the greatest person who ever lived up to that point, had bad moments. So your wife may have some bad moments. Your pastor might have a bad moment or two every once every couple 31 years, you know. Yeah, your, sec- your two-year-old slash three-year-old grandson might have a few bad moments. Um, in other words, unrealistic, unrealistic expectations about life on earth is going to demoralize anybody. That was John's problem, unrealistic, unbiblical expectations. So if you want to have a real bitter experience in life, just embrace those unrealistic expectations. It'll work every time. If it worked on John, it'll work on you. John the Baptist was a great person in a gross state of mind, and it can happen, and I've been there. He's a victim of stinking thinking. Same song, second verse. Moving from first century John to 21st century uh, Debbie Corbin. And, you know, could anybody else have been in a train wreck and have the attitude she's got? I'm going to say Debbie Corbin's the second greatest person who ever lived, right behind John the Baptist. It's unbelievable, man. But I'm going to stop referring to bad things as train wrecks. That's worse than a train wreck, because I've got somebody who's just recovering from a train wreck. I used to say as bad as a heart attack, and then we had somebody, I mean, Bill had a heart attack or something. I said, I've got to quit saying that from the pulpit. It brings up bad memories. Um, but it's not what I say. It's what I mean by what I say, right? And you guys love me enough to let me do that. Uh, moving from first century to 21st century, from John the Baptist to John Doe the Baptist. How about that? Made that up all by myself. Or John Doe the TBFer. Unbiblical, unrealistic expectations about God, about other people, about reality in a fallen world will guarantee anybody here a bitter life experience. And the progression looks like this. I could spend 45 minutes on this, and I've got five, so I'm going to keep that in mind. Unfulfilled expectations, even if they're totally unrealistic and unbiblical, will lead to real emotional pain. And I hate to see anybody in pain, even though they got stupid, dumb, selfish expectations. I don't, I don't like to see that. My heart goes out to them, but you gotta kinda tell them the truth. Uh, that's gonna happen every time. Emotional pain held onto leads to anger, and that's where this whole train should stop. Then say train wreck. Uh, you can clam up. That's not a great strategy over time. Uh, you can blow up. That's not a great strategy. Or you can wise up, go back, and readjust your expectations, and that will help. But unfulfilled expectations lead to emotional pain. Emotional pain held on to develops really deep anger. Deeper held on to leads to bitterness and depression. If you want to be depressed, hold on to your anger for sure. 
and bitterness held onto long enough, at least hostility and hate, which is exactly where Asaph is for the first third of the of Psalm seventy three. All right, so beware of that. Uh, take this to heart. Trying to hurry, hinder, supervise, and or second guess God, what He does, doesn't do, how and when He does it or doesn't do it, while very tempting, and it's a temptation for me to this day is always a really bad idea, and it doesn't work. <laughs> you know? While other people around us might do so, God does not enable his people, doesn't uh, work to enable his people to have unbiblical, unrealistic expectations. So yeah, I was going to stop there, but I thought, well, well, how about the realistic expectations? I'm not saying don't have any standards. While we strive in ourselves first, we've got to be our number one spiritual science project. It's a lot easier for me to make Debbie my number one spiritual science project or somebody really hard to get along with like Janice Skinner. It's a bit easy for me to, from a distance, make her my number one science project. But while we strive for the ideal in ourselves and our Christian walk as disciples of Jesus, until we get to heaven, we're going to have to live with the real. And under the sun, everything we see and interact with outside of ourselves is less than perfect, less than complete, and it's all only temporary. So, you know, the learnings for living here, I mean, uh, as we live under the sun, trying to follow the sun, S-O-N, uh, children and teenagers need to cut a little slack to their parents. And parents, you need to cut a little slack to your teenagers because they're going to probably act like teenagers occasionally. Students, your teachers probably aren't perfect. Don't have unrealistic expectations about your teachers. Um, teachers, your students are on a learning curve. They haven't went through this textbook 30 times like you have, so they may not know it as well as you do. Workers, you're never going to have a perfect supervisor. And supervisors, some of your workers uh, will, will uh, give you some challenges. But I'll end with this. Trying to hurry. Hinder, supervise, or second-guess God, what he does or doesn't do. How and when he does what he does or doesn't do. While tempting is not a a good way to live life, and uh, God's not going to bless you when you're in that state of mind. Punt that away, start over. Okay, and let's have a word of prayer. Father, it's such an important principle. It's such amazing to read, uh, thing to read this passage where John is second-guessing the Lord and he's so gracious to him. He's saying, look, I'm right on schedule with a big smile on his face. No problem. Just think about this. John put the lamb first and the lion second. And then he emphasizes, John's the greatest guy who ever lived to this point. Uh, you are so incredibly gracious to your children. And I think sometimes some of us are just too hard on ourselves. And I just believe that uh, we're saved by grace through faith. It's not based on our works before, during, or after the uh, the point of salvation and you teach us that if we give somebody a glass of water in Jesus' name, we'll forget about that, but we're going to get a reward for that. I just got to believe, Lord, that you love your children so much, you can't wait to find stuff to like about us. We tend to, some of us are just very too hard on ourselves. Others are way too hard on everybody else. And Father, I'd pray that you'd help all of us to rethink our expectations about uh, ourselves and about the people in our lives and about the responsibilities and the entities we interact with and help us to have more realistic expectations, help us to always be a force for good. You know, I've always said about um, Rick and Carla, everything they plug into, they make better. You know, that's that's the kind of people you want us to have. I mean, John the Baptist made the spiritual climate much better 
even though the vast majority still rejected it. So help us to be not so convicted we get depressed from hearing a message like this. Help us to realize there's all kinds of possibilities. Help us to have more realistic, more biblical expectations about everything, starting with our friends and our family, and then go from there and realize as we abide in Christ and do the right thing the right way, even if nobody else cares seemingly or notices, you care, and you're going to commend us for it in heaven. Incredible. So motivate us to be more where you want us to be in our minds, our hearts, and rather than evaluating and second-guessing you when things are not going according to our plan, help us to continue to trust and obey you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.